I'm going to start out our time this morning just by making this statement. Gospel preaching is a means for life and death. Let me say that again. Gospel preaching is a means for both life and death. Maybe you have not thought about gospel preaching in that way. Maybe you have not even pondered that reality. And this morning we are forced in that direction by God Himself as we open the Scriptures to Luke chapter 3. If you are not there yet, please take your Bibles and open them to Luke chapter 3. It is always a joy for us to be here studying the Word of God together on the Lord's Day. We have had a full week after the whole Easter celebration, and I trust you were reflecting upon all that God brought to your mind and to your own heart as you spent time with family and friends over our time last Lord's Day. What wonderful truths to think about when we think about the resurrection and we understand the salvation that we have been given through Jesus Christ. How God, by His sovereign hand and divine mercy, through the death, burial, and resurrection, has given us all that was necessary for salvation... And all of that was completely and fully accomplished by Him, God the Father, through God the Son, by means of the work of God the Spirit in our hearts. This morning we are returning where we left off some weeks ago to Luke chapter 3 and the beginning of the ministry of Jesus Christ as we look at the forerunner to Jesus Christ through the ministry of John the Baptist. We know from previous studies that John the Baptist was the prophesied forerunner for Jesus Christ. In God's divine plan of redemption, he had predetermined to bring John on the scene prior to the ministry of his son Jesus Christ with the specific purpose of preparing the people in their hearts and their minds for the reception of the long-awaited and promised Messiah. The primary action related to the ministry of John the Baptist was the preaching of God's Word to the people. John was the prophesied forerunner and the means by which he would prepare the people or help them be prepared for the coming of the Messiah was preaching. The preaching of God's Word to the hearts of the people. Preaching is an interesting reality. It's the verbal proclamation of the Word of God to say what God says and explain what God means by what He says is preaching. That's the primary intent of preaching. That is what 
drives preaching, the, the speaking of what God says and the explanation of what God means by what he says. Preaching can be formal, like we do on our Sunday Lord's Day, where we spend our time in the study of the Word of God. That is a formal reality by which we are preaching. That's what our church does. That's what other faithful churches throughout the world are doing on the Lord's Day. And yet, preaching can also be informal. It can be an informal time whereby we as Christians, as individual Christians, are, are in a sense preaching. We are telling someone what God has said and explaining to them what God means by what He says when we open the Word of God and help someone understand what it's saying. Why do I say all of that? Because preaching in its widest definition is the proclamation of the Scriptures. That's what preaching is. Someone might give a more general definition of that because we can say in just the world that someone was out preaching some kind of doctrine or some kind of... uh, business mantra in some kind of sense that we could describe that as preaching in the sense that they're heralding whatever it is they know and they we could say that that is preaching but preaching in its in its widest definition i think when we when we talk about the true sense of preaching is the proclamation of the scripture If there isn't a proclamation of the Scriptures, if there isn't a proclamation of what God is saying, and thereby then the explanation of what God means by what He says, then it is not preaching. It might get close to preaching, but it is not preaching. The preaching of the Scriptures has an intent on equipping people, equipping the saints, and confronting those who are unbelievers about the saving truth that is found only through Jesus Christ. This is what John was doing. John was fulfilling his ministry by preaching the gospel. And it is is this reality that I want us to reflect upon this morning The reality that preaching the gospel is a means for life and death. Notice John chapter 3, verses 18 through 20. The scriptures tell us through Luke's hand, so with many other exhortations also, he, that is John, preached the gospel to the people. But when Herod the Tetrarch was reproved by him on account of Herodias, his brother's wife, and on account of all the wicked things which Herod had done, he added this also to them all, that he locked John up in prison. Let's let's pray and ask God to honor his word. This morning, Father, we know that your word tells us you 
esteem your word even higher than your very name, which is unfathomable in some ways to our minds because we know that it is in your name that we find life. Here we are standing with your word, opening your word, reading your word, hearing your word, the very essence through which we hear of you, the one who is the creator and giver of life, and we desire to know you more and to know you better, and we desire those who do not know you to to know you. And so we ask this morning that in whatever words are spoken this morning, that what we hear from your word would penetrate our hearts and change us. Cause us by the power of your spirit to be just as you have intended us to be for those who are your own, just like Jesus Christ. Cause eyes to be open to the truth of the gospel that they might be saved. and Cause all of us who know Jesus Christ by faith to be like him in greater ways just because of this encounter. Thank you for our time. In Christ's name, amen. Everywhere there is apathy. Nobody cares whether that which is preached is true or false. Those were the words of one of the most well-known preachers in the past 100 plus years that we know of in evangelicalism. Spoken words of Charles Spurgeon as he was embroiled in a controversy concerning the state of the church in his day in which the preaching of the truth, the preaching of the Word of God was no longer tolerated. It was no longer being embraced. Paul's words to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, the Apostle Paul warns Timothy, his young disciple, that this kind of attitude that was being referred to by those words of Charles Spurgeon was the attitude that always comes out of a sinful heart. It's always latent within the sinful humanity of man when the Word of God is preached. Paul said this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. He said, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Because the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Why? Why does the human heart recoil so much so against sound doctrine? 
Why does the human heart run from the truth? Why even in our midst this morning are there potentially some even sitting here in our midst who have heard the truth time and time and time and time and time again and yet still at this very moment are rejecting the truth that they hear? Why? It is simply this fact. The truth confronts error. And sin is error. The truth challenges every thought. The truth exposes and uncovers every sinful action. It it exposes every detail that does not match up to its absoluteness. The truth is unbending. The truth does not change. The truth is sharp and, and blunt. It is unrelenting. And therefore, the human heart seeks for a softer, it seeks for an easier, conforming, self-satisfying way. The truth demands conformity to it. Truth demands that you follow it or be crushed by it. The human heart seeks its own own desires. And therefore, it turns away from truth. So in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul is saying to Timothy, listen, you preach truth. And you preach nothing but the truth because to do anything else is to lead others to eternal damning error. Where would Paul get that kind of tenacity? Where would the apostle Paul gain that kind of sense in which he would have this solidified courage. Well, it was the same thing that he tells Timothy to proclaim and the same thing that he heard modeled by those who had gone before him. Paul's unbending courage came from the same place we see John the Baptist's courage come from. It came from the gospel. The very thing preached, the very truth that's heralded, the very way to the Messiah, the very way in which the heart is prepared to come is the very thing in which gives the preacher the courage to preach. The very thing that people need most to hear about is the very thing in our own hearts that ought to solidify and encourage us and give us the courage to tell them the very thing that can save them. The very thing that holds the martyr's arms to the stake when the fire has been lit under his feet is the gospel. John had courage, and our text tells us this morning, with many other exhortations also, he preached the gospel to the people. 
This is very interesting to me. It was hard for me to get past this in my own studies, even this week, as a preacher of the gospel. It ought to be interesting to all of us who know Jesus Christ by faith. Sometimes when we read the Scriptures and we get to this kind of section and this kind of portion in the narrative, we, we just kind of run past that and we think of it as a small detail. Oh, okay, yeah, he just continued to go on in ministry. But it's very interesting to us because all of us, by the very nature of being a Christian, all of us who know Jesus Christ are to be preachers of the gospel. It's interesting that Luke identifies John's preaching, which which we know some of it because it's included for us in the previous verses that we studied, beginning in verse 7. It's interesting to us, it should be interesting to us, because, because it's called gospel, and yet his preaching includes judgment and repentance. It's interesting that all of that is identified for us by God through Luke, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as gospel. Oftentimes we think of the gospel, we think about simply the truths of Jesus Christ and who Jesus Christ was and and the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ and all of those realities that we love so much and we hold to so much and we believe in our own hearts as Christians, and it is true. And yet here in Luke's gospel, we have identified for us the preaching of John, and the preaching of John includes all of that and then some. In other words, whatever it is we may think about preaching, and specifically the preaching of the gospel, we better not think that the gospel is the idea that Jesus simply has a good plan for your life. We better not get this idea in our minds and in our heads that Jesus has a special purpose for you, so you you better find out the purpose... Because embedded in the very fabric of the gospel is the judgment of God and the necessity for repentance of sin. Remember the words of John the Baptist in verse 7? He therefore began saying to the multitudes who were going out to be baptized by him, they were going out to continue in their aspects of this religious ritual kind of righteousness whereby they thought this was just the next thing to do. He says to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, go Bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father, because I say to you, God is able to raise up stones, raise these stones, and raise them up as children to Abraham. And also, verse 9, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's judgment language, beloved. That's judgment language. 
The whole idea of judgment is throughout this entire passage. In fact, verse 17, he says his winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, judgment may not sound like good news, right? Evangelion, the gospel, that's what we mean, good news, right? Judgment may not sound like good news, but it's an essential aspect of the gospel. Why? Because if the wickedness of sin is not perfectly and ultimately dealt with, then there is no good news at all. In fact, we have to say, we have to acknowledge that this kind of bad news, the news of judgment, is the very best news. Bad news is part of the good news of the gospel. And John preached that news And some, as we saw in our study, repented. Some asked, okay, what does that look like in my life? They repented and wanted to know, okay, how does repentance look if I'm to go and bear fruit of repentance, show fruit in my life as to the genuality of my repentance? John said, listen, you give freely, you work honestly, and you live contently. We walked through that in the previous verses. That's not all the things. That's not a comprehensive understanding of what a Christian life looks like. But that is a start. In other words, true repentance is seen through a changed life. To change means there has to be confrontation. What you are doing is challenged with what you ought to be doing. Paul said it this way, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Those are the words he said to Timothy. Preach the word. Here's what you do. You reprove, you rebuke, you exhort with great patience and instruction, and you do it all the time. Whether people want to hear it or whether they do not want to hear it, you preach the word. Why? Because both you and the people stand before a holy God who is going to judge the living and the dead. We must hear the bad news, which is good news for us to hear. And so John went about John didn't just say, oh good, I've had a crowd, they've come to me, this has been wonderful, some have gotten baptized, some actually have asked some good theological questions, and I've helped them understand what the truth means by what it says, and they need to go out, and they need to live this way, and oh, that's great, and now the crowd is dissipating, and oh, look, it must be over. No, John, with many more exhortations, with much more to say, It wasn't just believe upon Jesus Christ and now you have your fire insurance for glory. No, it was now live as Christ. He preached with many other exhortations which were all part of the gospel. They were all part of the good news. And notice, notice, 
that the preaching of the gospel doesn't allow for a neutral response. Notice verses 19 and 20. But when Herod the Tetrarch was reproved by him, so John's exhortations and John's preaching of the the bad good news reached the ears of Herod himself. We don't we aren't given here in Luke's gospel how that all took place and when that all took place and the timing of all of that, but we know that it did because here it says when Herod the Tetrarch was reproved by him, John is being faithful to the very exhortation that Paul was giving Timothy in 2 Timothy 4. He was reproving. The preaching of the gospel does that. The preaching of the word of God does that to the hearts of men. Herod is being reproved by him, and the Word of God is challenging him. It is confronting him as to his very life. It's challenging him on account of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other wicked things that he was doing in his own life. That's what the Gospel does. It ought to be very evident to us, just from the reading of verse 19, that the preaching of the gospel can have, for your very own life, it can have very life-altering consequences. It can have life-altering consequences for the hearer of the gospel, and it can have life-altering consequences for the preacher of the gospel. It is a means for life and death. Luke's Gospel doesn't tell us all that took place with Herod. But on your own time, you can look at the other Gospels and you can look at the accounting of John the Baptist and the constant preaching of the truth to Herod concerning the sinful relationship that he had with his brother's wife. This is an adulterous situation that was taking place. And the preaching of John to Herod and to the surrounding people and to those who probably came even from Herod's court to hear about the truth of what God means by what he says struck a chord, not simply with Herod, but struck a chord with Herodias, who was his brother's wife. Because after Herod had John arrested and held in prison, as it says here in verse 20, Herod had a birthday, and he had a big party, and all things were going well, and Herodias' daughter danced for the people, certainly in a sensual way. And so Herod makes the foolish promise to this young woman, I'll give you anything you want, even up to half of my kingdom, Herod asks. And so she runs to her mom, what should I ask for? Tell me something I could ask for. And of course her mom, having been reproved and rebuked by John and his preaching to not only Herod, but to the ears of Herodias through whoever was involved in that situation, concocts this scheme to appease her own wicked sense of revenge. And John is beheaded by means of an act of manipulation on the part of Herodias' daughter. And in that very moment, by God's sovereign plan and through God's sovereign hand, John's preaching is silenced. 
Beloved, this is what the gospel does. This is what the gospel does. The gospel continues to challenge. It continues to reprove one's sinful state. It calls out the wrong, and it directs the wrongdoer to face the holy justice of God. We are not the standard. My life is not the standard by which others might must live. Your life is not the standard by which you are holding someone up and saying, listen, you must repent because you're not like me. No, that's none of it. It's simply this. Here is who Jesus Christ is. Here's who you are. And you are going to face a holy God and you must answer for that. Herod hated that. Herodias hated that. Why? Because their lives were wicked. No more wicked than anyone else's. Just more public. And for Herod, the preaching of John, for Herodias, it was the last straw. And so Herod has John arrested, has him imprisoned, and by the very mouth of God through Luke, this is the apex of Herod's sin. Not only was he having this adulterous relationship with his brother's wife and all the other wicked things which Herod had done, but he added this also to them all. What? He locked up the one who brought him the good news. He desired to silence God. All sin is sin, beloved. But some sin carries a greater indignation. And so the very character of the preacher of the gospel, the very character of John is revealed to us in all of its courage in the face of such danger. We have to think about just who John was preaching to. This is Herod. This is the one to whom Luke says at the beginning, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was Tetrarch of the region of Iteria and Tronconitis, and Licinius was Tetrarch of Abilene. I mean, this is the royal family. These are the power brokers. These are the people. These are the ones that make the rules. These are the ones that write the rules for by which you must live by or you die. Think about John preaching in that way and reproving him and exhorting him and 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 challenging him and and pointing out his sin. John's love for Herod, John's love for those people, John's love and understanding of what they needed. They needed the bad news about themselves. He might have remained silent in the face of Herod who had so much earthly power. 
How often, how often do we, as Christians who have the truth, withhold it from others because we've been faced with so little by way of comparison adversity? But John didn't remain silent. Why? He, he was sent by God. He was sent by God as a preacher of the good news. And, and the good news confronts sin wherever it's found. The good news just doesn't sit back and ignore those kinds of things. It, it just confronts it no matter who the sinner is. This is what strikes me the most of this text. What does this kind of, or or where does this kind of courage come from? How can we be helped in this area? So often we just shy away. So often we don't say what needs to be said. So often we don't confront sin because, oh my goodness, it might destroy relationship. It might close the door, we say. As if somehow, in some way, we've convinced ourselves that we personally have some kind of effect upon the heart. How do we have this kind of courage? Luke chapter 3 does not tell us. But I believe we can get a glimpse of what motivated John and thereby what motivates any Christian, what ought to motivate us to preach the gospel no matter the personal cost. We find it in the words of the Apostle Paul. Turn for a moment with me over to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. There are several truths in this chapter of Scripture that we've been given by God that we could certainly consider as motivators for preaching the Gospel. But but I believe all of them are empty without the, the one that we find in verses 16 and 17. Notice what the Apostle Paul says. Very familiar verses to us. Hopefully we'll, we'll see this and, and hear it in a way that will motivate us to do what God has called us to be and to do. The example of which we see in John the Baptist, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. That, beloved, is a remarkable statement in light of all that Paul endured in his life after his own salvation. I am not ashamed of the gospel. The Apostle Paul, we know from Scripture, was imprisoned several times because of the preaching of the gospel. The Apostle Paul was chased, physically chased, out of city after city because of the preaching of the gospel. When the Apostle Paul goes to to Greece, to the city of Athens, 
and he preaches the gospel to them. You can find the account in Acts chapter 17 when he goes there and he preaches in Athens. What he finds there is people who just laugh at him. They ridicule him. Some, very few, some believe, some are interested to hear him again. Many just walk away scorning and laughing at him. In Corinth, in Corinth, where we, we find the Corinthian church that he somehow, by the grace of God, was able to plant, Paul is considered by most to be just a, a babbling fool. Even those of his own heritage, the Jews, considered him to simply be a breaker of the Jewish law, a blasphemer. Paul even tells the believers in Corinth that he was beaten with rods several times. He was left dead even after being stoned. And yet here is Paul writing this theological treatise that he leaves saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Even though the gospel that I preached was the very avenue through which God used to, to cause me to be imprisoned, to be chastened out of town, chased out of town, to be locked up numerous times, to, to find all kinds of trouble every time I seemed to open my mouth about the gospel even though the gospel that I preached was a stumbling block to the Jews and it was considered by most of those who were not Jews to be just foolishness from me, I was not deterred. Why, Paul? Why can you say this? Paul knew the gospel wasn't attractive. It's not attractive news to the ears of sinful people. That's why he said what he said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul knew that. He didn't just hear that from somebody and never experience that. Paul knew that firsthand. He knew it was threatening. He knew that to the ears of people it could be revolting information. He knew that. He knew that the gospel would shine so brightly the light of truth of God, fully exposing sin and wickedness, that declaring the gospel, declaring that any works of righteousness were foolishness and would never give you any kind of answer before God, that your own efforts would never do anything before God, that it would be totally worthless in your sight. He knew that would be revolting news to people. Why? Because the gospel begins with the outright bad news. When the bad news is heard, man's natural or sinful response is to hate it, to try to find ways around it, to try to discredit it, to try to get rid of it at any cost. Because of that fact, there are constant attempts by the Christian and by the evangelical community at large to soften the truth. 
to make what God says and what God means by what he says less threatening, less confrontative, less revolting. In fact, one popular pastor wrote a book several years ago. Maybe you've heard of it, called The Purpose Driven Church. Said this, that if you're going to reach the lost with the gospel, then you better adapt your message to fit what they want to hear. Quote, you cannot start with the text expecting the unchurched to be fascinated by it. You must first capture their attention and then move them to the truth of God's word, unquote. He went on to say, quote, people's immediate needs are key to where God would have you speak on that particular occasion. Well, I want to tell you this morning, that is not what John did. John didn't take a public survey and say, hey, listen, what's going on with you? What are your needs for life? Let me tell you what Jesus will help you with. The Apostle Paul certainly didn't do that. Some years ago, Jeffrey Wilson wrote this saying, quote, the unpopularity of a crucified Christ has prompted many to present a message which is more palatable to the unbeliever, but the removal of the offense of the cross always renders the message ineffective. He said, an inoffensive gospel is also an inoperative gospel, unquote. He's right. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The word is ashamed is a great word. It is a great word. You know what it means? Hesitate to preach. Hesitate to preach. In other words, Paul says, I am not hesitant to preach the gospel. I'm not fudging. I'm not waiting. I'm not acquiescing. I'm not thinking about whether this might close a door or open a door. None of that has entered my mind. I am not hesitant to preach the gospel, even though it's offensive, even though in the ears of a sinner it's unattractive, even though it can be troublesome for my very life. Why? Why, Paul? Here's the answer. Because... There is nothing, nothing more powerful than the gospel. Notice what Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God for salvation. It is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. The Apostle Paul is saying exactly what we see happening in the heart of John the Baptist in his preaching. That what motivates the Apostle Paul to preach 
And what I believe motivated John the prophet to preach is the very fact that they had been given the most powerful weapon ever known for changing lives. They had been given the power of God for salvation. Power, the word dunamis, is where we get our word dynamic. Dynamic. I know some of us like to think that's where we get our word dynamite. Well, they would have had no idea what dynamite was back in those days. It's more dynamic. In other words, the gospel is the dynamic. The gospel is the dynamic. It is the means that God uses to change lives. It is the message that shares the truth of God about the truth of man and the truth of Jesus Christ that God uses to open the eyes and hearts of people through the power of His Spirit. The Gospel. The good news. All that that entails, which begins with bad news. Why is this necessary? Why is that necessary? Why Why is it that God would have designed it so that Paul would be here encouraged by that fact in his own heart, in his own life, regardless of the cost, and why? Why is this necessary that God used this to change the heart? Because man has no ability... In and of himself, in his own fallenness, man has no ability to change himself. There has to be something from the outside that will change man, and the only thing that will change man from his sinfulness to a one who repents and turns to God is the power of God. Nothing else. Jeremiah said it this way, Can an Ethiopian change his skin color or leopard his spots? then can you also do good who are accustomed to do evil? But Jeremiah said, listen, you, uh, 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 you can't change your skin color any more than a leopard can change his own skin color and what he is made by his very makeup and character. Therefore, you can't change from being evil to good. It's impossible. Impossible. It's not within the heart. It's not within the ability of man to change his own nature. Only the power of God is able to overcome man's corrupt, sinful nature and bring him to salvation. So the Apostle Paul says, listen, I'm going to preach the gospel. I'm not ashamed of it. I'm going to preach it to you. Why? Because in spite of what you may think, in spite of the reality that it may cost me my physical life, even at your very hands, it is the only thing that is able to help you. Nothing else will. It may not be what you want, but it is absolutely what you need. So Paul says, I'm not ashamed. Not hesitant to preach. In fact, this is the very thing that motivates me to preach because the gospel is the power of God to save your very soul. The 
And I believe what motivated the Apostle Paul is the very thing that motivated John. The power of God being administered through the power of the gospel of God unto the salvation of those who refuse to believe that God drags to himself by his divine mercy. That simply means, beloved, that salvation is not something of us. That salvation, that the power of God for salvation is through the gospel by faith. That's why Paul includes that little prepositional phrase, to everyone who believes. It's by faith. In other words, the dynamic of God that works through the gospel to bring salvation is His gift of faith. Salvation comes not by reliance upon the words of the gospel, not by having faith in the pages that the gospel is written on and we read it, or on the lips of the person who is saying it. No, the, the, the reliance or salvation comes upon the one to whom the gospel points. That is Jesus Christ. Therefore, eternal life is gained and is lived by faith. We enter into salvation by God's mercy through the gift of faith, and we live in that salvation by faith each and every day. As we walk by faith, entrusting ourselves to Jesus Christ. The beauty of that whole reality is it's not us keeping us there. It's God's righteous, sovereign hand keeping us there. God says through the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2, for it's by grace that you have been saved through faith. The grace of God to grant you mercy and the gift of faith so that you would repent and believe. There's nowhere in Scripture whereby God commands man to change his own behavioral outworkings and lifestyles so that he might be right with him. No, God commands all men to believe. To believe what? Believe in the object of the gospel. Believe in Jesus Christ. And we are promised in the Scriptures that everyone who will turn from self, everyone who will rely on Christ, regardless of who you are by way of your national origin, by way of your race, by way of your family line, or any other kind of barrier, you will be saved. He says, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul's not proclaiming a universal salvation that that everyone will be saved. No, he's saying, listen, it is salvation that is there that God has granted to those whom he chose, and it's, it's from every tongue, tribe, nation on the globe. The Messiah came first to the lost sheep of Israel, and then by God's sovereign hand, because of their rejection, Christ has been offered to the Gentile world. So all who would believe will be saved, and only those who truly believe are saved. 
Why? Because verse 17, for in the gospel, that's what the it stands for. The gospel, it, the righteousness of God is uncovered, it's revealed, it's seen. You see the righteousness of God through Christ. You see the righteousness of God in all that He explains about Himself, in the bad news and in the good news. You see the righteousness of God there revealed, and you believe it from faith to faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Why is it that the gospel saves? Because in it, through entrusting oneself to the object of the gospel, God imparts His righteousness to the unrighteous. God gives His righteousness to those who are unrighteous. Doctrine of imputation. We have no time to go into that this morning. John the Baptist, the Apostle Paul, and every other faithful preacher throughout the history of time hold fast to the truth with unwavering courage. Why? Because they all know that the gospel is the power for life and death. By God's grace, because of God's mercy, He may allow it to cost you a relationship. He may allow it to cost you a job. He may allow it to cost us economic status. He may allow it to cause us any number of things that may cause us some kind of personal human hardship by way in which we are learning more and more about Him as we endure with patience. And yet He may, in fact, even cause it to cost us our very life. So be it. So be it. Charles Spurgeon, at the height of the controversy in which he was embroiled in at the end of his ministry, just weeks after being censured by the Baptist Union, said this in a message that he preached, and I'll close with this. He said, We must never hide our colors. There are times when we must dash to the front and court the encounter when we see that our captain's honors demand it. Let us never be either ashamed or afraid. Our Lord Jesus deserves that we should yield ourselves as willing sacrifices in defense of His faith. If in the heat of the battle our good name or our life must be risked to win the victory, then let us say... Quote, is the battle some of a, in this battle some of us must fall, why should not I? I will take part and lot with my master and bear reproach for his sake. And he went on to say, brethren, we must be willing. We must be willing to bear ridicule for Christ's sake even that particularly envenomed ridicule which, quote, the cultured, unquote, are so apt to pour upon us, we must be willing to be thought great fools for Jesus' sake. 
For my part, I'm willing to be 10,000 fools in one for my dear Lord and Master, and count it to be the highest honor that can be put upon me to be stripped of every honor and loaded with every censure for the sake of the grand old truth which is written on my very heart. When I think of how others have suffered for the faith, A little scorn or unkindness seems a mere trifle, not worthy of mention. An ancestry of lovers of the faith ought to be a great plea with us to abide by the Lord God of our fathers and the faith in which they live. John did his part. The Apostle Paul did his part. Spurgeon did his part. One author said it this way, they passed the baton to another generation. They finished their course having kept the faith and now it's our turn. Are we willing to suffer hardship for being faithful? Are we committed to a biblical ministry of preaching the word without shame? Men and women before us have paid with their blood to deliver the faith intact to us. Now it's our turn. Now it's our turn. Unquote. Beloved, I'll just say to you, the gospel is the means of life and death. Now it's our turn. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the words and the ministry that You have opened to us here through the life of John the Baptist, through the life of the Apostle Paul, through even the life of Charles Spurgeon and others. Many we have, even in the Rolodex of our mind as we think about the lives of the faithful who have gone before. And oft we are ashamed when we think about our own life and so often how unfaithful we can be. We're thankful that we are not the power of the gospel unto salvation, but that you are the power unto salvation. That the only reason the words of yours have power is because of who you are, the very one to whom the gospel proclaims, Jesus Christ, Lord of lords, King of kings, Lord, it is our plea this morning that those with us who do not know Jesus Christ would repent this very day of their sin. That they would come to know Jesus Christ. That they would, in fact, realize they're playing with the arsenic of hell by rejecting you and that they continue, it will only take them to an eternity of judgment. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would break their hearts. And those who know you by faith in Christ, who have received the gospel, who who know Jesus Christ, that we would be bold and courageous. That we would proclaim the truth, no matter the cost. All for your glory, all for your honor, motivated by the reality that The gospel is the power of you unto salvation for all who would believe. 
In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.